what I'm going to talk about is really, it's kind of funny because it's not at all what I had planned throughout most of this week. Um, I had this plan in my mind as I was looking at all these things that I was going to have the opportunity to preach on, and I was thinking, divorce, that's only, that's only two verses, like, oh, and like four more after this, I'm going to combine these together because they go so well. And I was really preparing throughout all this week, and really because I was just terrified to spend a whole morning on Jesus' teaching on divorce here. And it was two verses, and I just didn't think I was going to be able to make that work. And God kind of showed me differently this week um, that I really, he's like, slow down, slow down, slow down. You're trying to do way too much in just a little bit of time. So if it seems a little thrown together, it's because it changed a whole lot yesterday morning. Um, and then going throughout yesterday, it was just like God was saying, focus on this, focus on this. So bear with me if it's a little patchy. I think something I really appreciate, like when I was thinking about this chapter or this section, is I've been very thankful for CRC. Just that, that since I've been here, we've really done, a, I think, a very good job at going through entire books, like preaching straight through a book. And even in the Sunday nights, we preach or we talk right through Leviticus of all of them. Like, we didn't shy away from the difficult things that is so tempting to do. I think you've seen that as some churches, as they do very topical sermons, that what happens is a lot of difficult things get bypassed. A lot of things that are countercultural do not get touched on. And yes, I was referring to David Platt's book. But what you see like here is we're not skipping over a passage that is a sensitive topic. And I, and I really just appreciated that um, as a church, I guess. This week has been very difficult um, for me just in preparing for this. I felt very overwhelmed that, that I was going to be talking about this passage just because there's so much weight on this whole topic. There's so much pain for a lot of people. There's emotion. There's um, just difficulty surrounding anything about divorce. That the Jesus' teaching is so countercultural that it's hard to hear sometimes. And I've really been praying a lot this week. I was up early all this week just, just really just feeling overwhelmed at preaching this, especially as a single guy who still don't know what I'm doing up here, and I get this topic. And it was, it's been hard. But I pray that, my prayer has been that we would not just feel any sort of pain, any sort of regret or remorse associated with this topic, but that the big picture of what comes out of this is we see God's grace, we see God's mercy, and we see his relentless pursuit of us as sinners. Like, we said, it worked out well, we saying relentless, that we'd see that God's relentless pursuit of us, and, and I just pray that we would see that. I'm going to read Matthew 30, it's Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I realize that this passage is discussing divorce. That is the, I'd say that that's the title in my Bible that's put in there is divorce. But what I want to do is to paint a very brief picture of marriage first of a God-designed marriage 
and kind of we'll put that out in the forefront as we talk about divorce. Like as we focus that we say that we know that marriage is a God-ordained thing, that this was not a man's creation, this was God's creation. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I think that just setting this picture that God performed the first marriage. It was not man. It was not the government that said, it's going to be a man and a woman that get married. But that it was God's design. Listen to what John Calvin says. He says, Though the husband and wife are united by mutual consent, God binds them by an indissoluble tie so that they are not afterwards at liberty to separate. Like, this is God defining this. It's God designing this. And it's him that's doing the marriage. It's not the pastor doing the marriage. It's not the government saying, this government official that are ordained to, give a ma- to marry someone, but it's God. That's why I think this debate over the definition of marriage in this culture is so pointless. Because we say that, oh, the government, is same-sex marriage allowed? Is it not allowed? Is, can, who can get married? Who can't get married? Who can get a divorce? Who can't get a divorce? That it is so pointless because never does the government have this authority. That it's been the very beginning, it's been that God is saying, this is what marriage is. It says, Genesis 2.24 very clearly says, one, one man, one woman, one flesh for life. Like, that is the thing. He says, go forward, multiply. Never is it say, but there's divorce. That's an option. Like, that God is the one that defines this. And what I want to do is, I'm going to flip and read some verses from Ephesians. And this is one of the most well-known verses describing marriage. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Listen closely. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the church, or head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Like, listen to these things that's set up here. It says, verse 23 says that Christ is head of the church. Verse 24 says the church submits to Christ. 25 says that Christ loved the church. 29 says that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. 32 makes it very clear. He says, This mystery is profound that I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Like, this is the whole purpose of marriage. Like, it's not an end of itself, but the marriage relationship is designed to show Christ and the church. Like, Christ and his future church and the love that is there, the, the submission that is there, the leading that is there. You see this set up from the very beginning. I think... These words, I actually was reading through the chapter in Counterculture, written by David Platt, on marriage and just the, the, the countercultural idea that marriage is in our current culture. Listen to this quote. He says, Behold the beauty of God's design for marriage. 
man and woman, two dignified people, both molded in the image of their maker, two diverse people, uniquely designed to complement each other, a male and female, fashioned by God to form one flesh, a physical bond between two bodies where the deepest point of union is found at the greatest point of difference, a matrimony marked by the unity and diversity, equality with variety, and personal satisfaction through shared consummation. Whoa, right. It's this beautiful picture of a man and a woman glorifying God as this ultimate big picture focusing on Jesus and his church. I just want to put this like out in front of us, that this picture of marriage is not merely about a man and a woman, that it's so much bigger than that. I'm going to go read Matthew 5, 31 and 32 again, the same thing we just read. It says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Once again, what we have here is, once again, Jesus correcting some Old Testament law interpretations. What he's done is like, we've said this the last couple weeks, he's not adding to the law, he's not removing anything from the law, he's not changing the law, he's just correcting this interpretation that the Pharisees had, had gotten wrong. And this really has me thinking, I know I've said this with an RCG multiple times and had conversations with various people, but it really has me thinking, these Pharisees were not some like Joe Schmoes on the street. Like these people were very learned men. These people were people who, if anyone knew about the Bible, about the Old Testament, it was them. Like they, they were the people that you look to for wisdom, for guidance. And I've been thinking about this that I really pray and hope that, that the church, like us, the Christian faith, that we're not falling into just relying on what these big leaders are saying because they were misinterpreting this, that we not base our knowledge, uh, sorry, uh, that we're not, we not base our knowledge on something that even a respected Christian leader is saying, but that everything they're saying is coming from here. And I pray that we would focus on that, that everything we hear from the stage, everything we hear reading a book, everything we hear in our CGs, that it, you not just shake your head and nod because anything Tanner says is true, but that you're testing what is in the Bible. Like, that's why I hope you bring your Bibles. That's why we have Bibles back there. Because I want us to be looking in here for the truth, not just what we're saying, not just what anyone says, no matter how big name this person is. I'm not saying that, what any, that any individual says something wrong or Tanner says something wrong or I say something wrong. But that's not the truth. The truth is in the Bible. And hopefully we're explaining that well but I want the Bible to be our authority. I just something I've been thinking about this week as we keep saying, Jesus is correcting some misinterpretations. Jesus is correcting some misinterpretations. I, I, I think we do a very good job of really digging in and say, what does this mean? But I think that's something to be aware of here. And unlike the last couple weeks, Jesus has been talking about the Ten Commandments. He says, you've, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. You've heard it said, you should not lust or commit adultery. He actually says adultery. But this, this one, the verse is saying something back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to flip there. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but it's chapter 24 in Deuteronomy. Listen to this passage. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And that is a long sentence. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. As I was reading this, I was thinking, for once, I'm not sure I blame the Pharisees for being confused. Like, is he not saying that to give her a certificate of divorce? That seems to be what I was saying. The Pharisees said lots of silly things, but I don't know that I can blame them a whole lot in this instance. That Matthew 19, you see them coming to Jesus, questioning him, with this, this portion of Deuteronomy. And I don't want to talk too much about Matthew 19 because we will get there at uh, some point um, in a year or so. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Tanner might fly through the next 10 chapters in the next three weeks. I don't know. Three weeks. There you go. Tanner's going to do from 5 to 19. Three weeks. But Matthew 19, they actually come to him and say this. But Moses told us about this certificate of divorce. What are you saying? And it's a kind of a more in-depth discussion of what we see here in Matthew. But as you see, like nowhere within Deuteronomy 24 is Moses even commanding divorce. Nowhere is God saying, yes, go divorce your wives. I'm allowing you to do that. I think that's the big thing to notice here. And the same God that wrote Deuteronomy 24 also wrote Matthew 5. So they're not in conflict. But... Nowhere also does it say that he's condoning divorce either. That it seems more of a concession to sin. He knows that in our sin, in our brokenness, that we're going to get divorces. But that's because of a sinful heart. That as mankind, as being sinful, that divorces are going to happen. So he's not saying, okay, divorces are okay, but I'm going to put some laws, some parameters around this as you do it in your sin. It sounds kind of silly, but, but hang with me. Listen to Matthew 19.8. He says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Like, it never says it was God's intention. It says from the beginning, it was not so. I think, looking at this word indecency that it says, like in Deuteronomy um, 24, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. When I first read that, I'm like, that sounds awful. Like, you find an indecency in your wife and you can divorce her. That sounds a little confusing at first. And I, I did some research into it, different, some different commentaries and some things that different schools of thought were reading this a different way. You had a, more, a very liberal side saying that this indecency could be absolutely anything. It could be she forgot to comb her hair one day. She burnt your toes. She, anything she did, you could divorce her. Like that was allowed here in, Mo, in Moses' writing. Uh-oh. You burned the toast? Okay. Um, but another school of thought said only on the grounds of sexual immorality is this allowed. And the third school of thought kind of said if she commits sexual adultery, sexual immorality or adultery against you, that you're commanded to divorce her, that it was no option there. But it was said, you have to do this if she commits adultery. So, like, there's been this debate, like, all, th all throughout this Jewish 
um, interpretation of it. They're like, well, what's it mean? And I think before we go farther, like, why was this certificate of divorce so important? Like, why was Moses mentioning it? And I, as I looked into it, basically, the, the, the rights of a woman in this time were basically zero. That a wife, a, a woman, had no way to provide for herself. She couldn't meet her needs if she was not married or in her father's house. That outside of that, that she had zero rights. That, that that's just the way their culture, their society was set up. And so if a husband just goes and divorces his wife because she burnt the toast or for any reason, even if it was sexual morality, if he goes and divorces her without these papers, without this certificate, that she is unable to remarry because an, another man is not going to take her as a wife because she see, he sees that the first marriage is still intact. So what this certificate did was say that this marriage is over, she is a single woman, and then a man could, could marry her because then she can be cared for, she, her needs can be met. So you see the certificate was not saying that divorce is okay, but it's saying that God is protecting the women when this sin happens. It's saying that, because women would often end up on the streets or, or being because they had no one to provide for them. So nowhere is God saying that divorce is okay, but he's saying that I'm going to protect the women in it. I think there's a big difference between God saying divorce is okay and God saying I'm going to protect the women when it happens. I want to jump back to Matthew 19. So remember what he said. God's, Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Like, divorce was not a God-ordained thing like marriage. Divorce is not this picture set up by God as saying, this is how it's going to work like marriage. He was very clear in defining marriage. I think that's very important. That marriage has always been from the very beginning, I said it before, but one man, one woman, one flesh... One life. Like, that's been the picture from the beginning. But in sin, God's like, you're going to do it anyways. So here's some parameters. Something I, I had never seen this before. I thought it was really cool this week. Um, I say really cool. Like, really cool is in, that makes sense. Not as a good cool kind of thing. But it, look, you, you read Genesis 3. You see the fall of man. And as God is saying, like, okay, because of this, this is what it's going to look like. This is what he talks to the serpent. He talks to man. He talks to woman. Listen to what he says to the woman. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I think that the focus is often here put on the childbirth part. Like, it often says, childbirth is not going to be fun. I speak from completely outside perspective here. Um, but, like, that's what is said here. But as I was thinking more about it, it's like, your desire shall be for your husband. I was like, well, that sounds like a good thing. Like, your desire is going to be for your husband. And we talked about last week that the sexual desire for your husband, the desire to love your husband, is a good thing. That's a God-ordained thing. That's a God-given desire. And so it wouldn't make sense for this good, of all the, in this curse, for it to be a good thing thrown in right in the middle because everything else is very, very bad. Man's going to fight against the soil. Women, childbirth's going to be awful. Things like that. So, as I looked more and more into it, this desire was not a sexual desire. It was not a desire to love, but it's a desire to lead. It's a desire to control. So, all of a sudden, he's saying that your desire is going to be to lead your husband. Your desire is going to be to control your husband. 
And do you see the issue here? Do you see? Let, I'm going to read Ephesians again. Ephesians 5, 22-24 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's a very different picture than a desire to lead your husband, a desire to control your husband. And I'm not going to say that every divorce is because the wife is trying to lead her husband. But I think you kind of see the, just the picture of sin there. You see this picture of sin being, I want the control. Keep touching that. I want the control. I want to lead my life. And I don't want anyone else to tell me otherwise. And with sin, like, you don't want anything to do with what God wants you to do. You're, you're totally dis- disobeying him because you're wanting to lead. So I think you see from the very beginning that God is saying that marriage is going to be difficult. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be times where both parties are, to, are going to want to be in control. I don't want to skip the fact that that same, as he says to the woman, that your desire is for your husband and he shall rule over you. Like, that rule over you doesn't sound good either. That as you, a husband is not ruling over the wife, but is lovingly providing, lovingly caring for the wife. I think there's that issue too. But I don't want to say the, the women have the problem here as they try to lead their husbands. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But as we set this picture that Deuteronomy 24 is not commanding divorce, it's not suggesting divorce, it's not saying that it's a good thing. Like, I also don't want to say that Deuteronomy 24 is saying, okay, well, since you guys are going to divorce anyways, here it is. Like, that he's saying that, okay, now divorce is allowed. Because I don't think that's it either. Like, that you see this in the Bible elsewhere as well. That it's not, this is not the only time when God says, I know you're going to sin, but I'm going to provide you this, and you're going to see the outcome. I mean, think about Saul, Israel winning a king. Like, God says, I want to be your king. I'm going to provide for you. Trust me to provide. I've been providing for you. And you've got Israel saying, no, we want a king. We want a king we can see. We want a king that's going to lead us in battle. And then Samuel goes and tells them, you know that comes with lots of negative things, right? You know that comes with paying taxes. You know that comes with giving your sons over to the army. You know that comes with all these negative things. And listen to their response. This is in 1 Samuel 9, 19 through 22. But he says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that, also, that we also may be like the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Like, there God is saying that, Oh, them having a king is a good thing now. I changed their mind. They wanted a king. Here's the king. It's a good thing. You kind of see, you don't see it play out that way in the life of Saul either. You kind of, there's some consequences to that. So we said that this is not saying divorce is okay. And Jesus is very clear that it's not in Matthew. But what is he teaching about divorce? So what, so what is he saying? He's saying in Matthew it says that except on the grounds of sexual immorality, that in that case it's allowed. The only other place in the entire Bible is in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And what Paul writes is, but, the unbelieving, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 
basically saying that if a believer and a non-believer are married and the non-believer wants out, then, the, then as a Christian you're said, let them go. But anything outside of this, any sort of reason outside of this, the Bible would say is sin, to divorce your wife. I, I always say divorce your wife. In that time, like, the wife had no ability to divorce her husband. That was not accepted. The husband, like I said, women had very little rights. But uh, I think the question still kind of remains, though. Okay, so God said there's these two reasons that are acceptable to, for divorce. But should, as a Christian, should we ever pursue divorce, even on those grounds? I think that there's some discussion to be had with you, whether you're talking about Matthew or whether you're talking about what is said in, in 1 Corinthians. I think they're a little bit different scenarios. But I think the answer is no. That as Christians, divorce is not something to be pursued. And before I go there with that, that route much farther, what I want to do is basically give a brief summary of Hosea. Um, I was going to have Tanner come up and just preach a sermon in five minutes. I thought he might. You did pretty well on the spot playing the drums. So, or playing whatever, the box drum. But I didn't do that. But what I want to do is I'm not going to go through and read a bunch of Hosea. I'm just going to give us a brief picture of the life of Hosea, this Old Testament prophet. You've got this Old Testament prophet, Hosea. It's commanded by God to go, it says to go marry a wife of whoredom. Basically, he's told to go marry a prostitute. Like right away, it's like, oh, that sounds a little scary. That sounds a little sketchy. That, that doesn't sound good. But he's told to go marry this woman. He goes and he has children with this woman. With this woman. Gives them very interesting names. Not going to get into that. Um, but believe it or not, this prostitute that he marries commits adultery on him one chapter later. Big surprise. But what you see is, I don't think any of us would have blamed Hosea that she went on to commit adultery. She's apparently, you see, he's, she's with another man. She's living with another man. She's not even with him. I think that if we think about this, well, I don't think we would condemn him for seeking a divorce. Like, seems like it's okay. But listen to what Hosea does. Listen to this verse. He says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. This is someone that is pursuing his wife who has been unfaithful. That seems extremely countercultural. That's not what even most Christians would say, oh, you're allowed out now. She committed sexual adultery. You're allowed out. But it says that he pursued her. He bought his own wife who had gone and was with another man. He pursued her and brought her back. And something with Hosea, what you see throughout the entire book, is this constant comparison of Hosea pursuing his wife, his unfaithful wife, and God pursuing the unfaithful people, his chosen people. You see this constantly side by side, back and forth, of God saying, my people are committing adultery against me. My people are being unfaithful to me. They're, they're chasing the lust of the world. They're lusting after other gods. They're lusting after the women of other nations, which I have forbidden for very specific reasons. Like you see this. And yet God, listen to what he says about his people. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her 
and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's talking about his unfaithful people. Like this word allure, it's not a word we use very often. Like I was thinking that like convince or, or like to bring back just doesn't do that justice. The word allure. Like I looked up another, like a synonym for it and there was no one word that really encapsulated that word. Like it's like entice with great love is the best that I kind of could find. And like you kind of feel that, allure her. I will allure her as he goes after her. This just seems, as you think of it in this perspective of divorce, that seems very radical. Very much like, no, like, she committed adultery against me. I'm allowed out. Like, no. But I think the picture, Tanner mentioned this a couple weeks ago, about reconciliation, that it is the job of the offender to go reconcile. It is the job of the offender to go and make things right. But he talked about how the gospel is so backwards from that. That the gospel is not the offender making things right, it is the offended. Like that our sin is the what offends God. Our sin offends God, but yet God is the one that made things right. We see that God bought back the unfaithful people. You see, Hosea went and bought her for 15 shekels. He went and gave barley. He bought back his wife. And what Jesus did, what God did was send Jesus as to buy us back. That The gospel says that as the offended, I'm going to go and buy back the offender. It's so backwards. It's so backwards. And I think we all know, like, our, with our sin offending God, that he does not have to buy, he did not have to buy us back. Like I said, Hosea, I don't think anyone would have said, you're... You shouldn't, go buy, you shouldn't go buy her back. Like Most people would have said, you're okay, let her go. She doesn't want to be with you. She's committed sexual adultery against you. She's chasing other men, and that's okay. Let her go do that. You're free. I'm really thankful that that's not what God did. Like, that he sent his son to buy us back. That the blood of Jesus is what bought us back. Like I don't want us to miss this, that we are the unfaithful wife here. And with this picture of Hosea, what I want to do is like step back into this conversation on divorce. I think that we've said reconciliation preaches the gospel. Hosea preaches the gospel because you have the unfaithful spouse being pursued by God. And how much does the, un- does the, the spouse chasing his unfaithful wife, forgiving his unfaithful wife, forgiving the offender, how much does that preach the gospel? Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, there must be forgiving love and restoring grace in marriage. That alone makes marriage a proper symbol of God's forgiving love and restoring grace. That that is the magnificence of marriage. I think that as the church, that preaches. That, that shows the gospel in those attempts. As, we, as you chase an unfaithful spouse, as you lovingly pursue them. That preaches the gospel. I don't want to say that, okay, this is a very easy thing to do, that it all works out good and gravy if you just pursue this. I don't want to say that that that's how it works out every time. 
But I do think that reconciliation should be pursued. That what that does is that paints a very beautiful picture of God pursuing dirty sinners and saving us. Like, that portrays that picture very, very well. Like, I don't want to close without saying, like, talking to people, I know there's people that have been very, very, very affected by divorce. Like, whether, whether it be within your own life, your own past marriage, whether it be your parents, whether it be friend, family, I don't know. But nowhere does the Bible say that a divorce, that an illegitimate divorce, a divorce that is not set up with one of those two grounds for divorce, nowhere does it say that that's an unpardonable sin, that that's not something that God's grace absolutely covers. I don't want that to ever be said. Like, the Bible says that God's grace covers a multitude of sins. Like, does God's grace cover you in your divorce, maybe your remarriage? Absolutely. Like, does God's grace cover you in your hate, your anger, your murder? Absolutely. Does God's grace cover you in your lust, your sexual morality, and your adultery? Absolutely. Like, we see that God is the ultimate reconciler. That God, it says in 2 Corinthians 15, huh, 5, that, 2 Corinthians 5, that, that God is the reconciler. That he is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. And that we are to be preachers of that message. And I think that this gives us, whether it be you talking to someone who's thinking about a divorce, well, I don't know how this all plays out, but reconciliation, this right here, preaches the gospel. And I just pray that, that those of us that are married or soon to be married, I'm going to lump myself into this one, uh, that, that we would, that divorce is not an option, that, that we would love and cherish marriage, that we would love and cherish our wife or our husband this way that you see portrayed here in the Bible. I pray that we would do that, that, that when difficulties arise, that we'd see that reconciliation is the goal. Like, for those that may have been affected by divorce, maybe they've been divorced, that, that you see that God's grace absolutely covers this, that it's not something that's, that's unforgivable, that God forgives, and I don't want that to ever be missed. Like, that it's not your sin in your past that defines you. That, that's absolutely not it. That, that God's grace is renewing grace. That it, it gives you that, that renew, that new spirit. It gives, it gives you a new person. Paul says, a new person. And for the unmarried, I pray that we have, you would pursue godliness. We talked about last week that in your singleness, you pursue godliness. You try to become the man or the woman that is marriable. Like, you pursue, you try to become that godly husband or that godly wife before you're married. And like, in your singleness, you're, you're preaching that message of reconciliation. That you preach that message that Christ reconciled. You got it on the window. Like, that Christ reconciled. But I just pray that we would all just preach this message of reconciliation. Whether it's with your own life, within your own marriage, within... Um, your counseling of someone else who's talking about divorce. But that we would take these words of Jesus so seriously. And that, and that in our brokenness, 
that we would see that the gospel talks about a God chasing an unfaithful wife, an unfaithful people. And I pray that because of this, we'd just be so thankful that God did not give up on us. He didn't let us go. He didn't say, oop, there's my out. But that God pursued us. Let's pray.